I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, friends, and welcome to this week's episode of Additional History, Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and this is the podcast about famous days and events in history. Sort of. You see, I'll tell you a little about a famous date, and then open up old newspapers and tell you what else was going on around the country and world on the exact same days as some of the most well-known events in history. Sometimes narrowing down the exact day of a historical event can be tricky, because the event doesn't always make it into newspapers right away. Today's event is one of those cases. I chose December 19, 1872, which is the first instance that I could find of this story being reported in the newspapers, although December 5th or November 25th could have been better days. But it wasn't in the papers then. Our famous headline was printed in the New York Herald on December 19, 1872, and it's just two words long. Marine disasters. Underneath that headline is a list of roughly 30 different boats that experienced problems at sea. Some had minor damage from storms, while others ran into trouble that completely destroyed their ships. About halfway through the list, it says, Brig Mary Celeste, oven from New York, November 7th, with petroleum, for Genoa, has been picked up derelict and towed into Gibraltar, December 16th. Yes, friends, today's famous event is the discovery of the ship known as the Mary Celeste, found abandoned in the Atlantic Ocean. Neither the captain nor his family or crew could be found anywhere. The ship was in good condition, and there was plenty of food on board to feed the crew for many months. The only thing missing was one lifeboat, and the ship's logbook hadn't been updated for 10 days. Many, many theories exist on what happened to the passengers and crew of the Mary Celeste. Some think it was pirates, others think it was mutiny, Others think maybe the crew of the DeGradia, the ship that found the Mary Celeste, killed the captain and crew so they could take the ship into port and get salvage rights to it. Perhaps the most common theory is that the cargo itself scared everyone away. If you noticed in the little newspaper blurb I read a minute ago, petroleum was mentioned. The Mary Celeste was taking a load of some sort of industrial alcohol to Europe, and many believe, and this is where I lean, that one of the barrels leaked and the fumes were making people sick, Or perhaps they were afraid the ship would catch fire from the leak, so they launched the lifeboat to wait it out, and somehow got lost, never to be seen again. The story of the Mary Celeste is a story that has inspired countless books and documentaries and legends and movies and TV shows. You might know the Mary Celeste by her nickname, the Ghost Ship. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle even wrote a short story about the incident a couple of years before he wrote his stories of Sherlock Holmes. The Mary Celeste has a special place in my heart. One day, many years ago, I was reading or watching something about the ship, and a picture of Captain Benjamin Spooner Briggs's daughter popped up. I'm pretty sure I'd heard the story before, but somehow seeing that picture of little two-year-old Sophia Briggs, whose life was cut short in some tragic way, really touched me. I wondered and wondered about Sophia's fate, and finally decided I had to know the ending to her story. Since it's an unsolved mystery, I decided to make up my own ending. Sophia Briggs, youngest passenger of the Mary Celeste, became one of the main characters in my first published novel, Shadow of a Life. 
I'll post a picture of the real Sophia in the additional history headlines you probably missed Facebook group so you can see her for yourself. Now, as much as I like talking about the Mary Celeste, I mean, I literally wrote an entire book about it, that's not what this podcast is about. We know, or at least think we know, the famous stories. It's what else was happening at the same time that puts the icing on the cake. So, let's see what else we can find. For my first additional history story of the day, I'm taking an article out of the Louisiana Sugar Bowl, a newspaper published in Iberia, Louisiana, on December 19, 1872. The headline says, Trubeshenef, the story of the Russian princess who joined the Oneida community. Now, I'll start off by saying that even though multiple newspapers printed this story in their newspapers in 1872, I couldn't prove its accuracy in other sources. For example, the person the article is about is referred to as a princess, yet I can't find information about her beyond what is written in these articles passed around from newspaper to newspaper in the last few months of 1872. Even if it's not accurate, or if the circumstances are exaggerated, which is what I think is the case, it still makes for an interesting story. According to the article, there was a girl named Alexandra Stratonivoskov, born in 1838 in Russia. Her father was a general who was mortally wounded at the Battle of Inkerman, which was a battle fought in 1854 during the Crimean War. Almost 12,000 people died during that unfortunate event. Because Alexandra was born to a noble father, she was able to go to school in the best schools in Russia. That included four years at the Imperial Female Seminary in Moscow. While she was going to school, she learned to speak multiple languages fluently. And I'd love to tell you which languages she learned, but the article left that part out. When Alexandra was 20 years old, she published a book of her poetry. Much to her delight, I'm sure, the poetry was well-received, not only with the public, but also with critics. Feeling inspired after the high praise her first book got, she decided to try her hand at writing novels and published a few of those. Her novels were just as loved as her book of poetry had been. Then, in 1861, when Alexandra was in her early 20s, she married a man whose last name was Trubeshenev. No first name for him was given anywhere, and try as I might, I couldn't unearth any more information on him or their marriage with the limited time and resources available to me. We do know from the article that the couple was married at St. Isaac's Cathedral in St. Petersburg. For anyone listening to this who might have visited St. Isaac's Cathedral and thought it was a beautiful old church, keep in mind that it had only been complete for a couple of years when Alexandra was married there. It was considered a modern church for the couple. Anyway, Alexandra and her new husband moved to Paris and lived there happily for two years. She continued to write and even had a short play she wrote performed at one of the theaters in Paris. Everything was going well for the couple, except the prince, I'll call him that since that's what the newspaper called him, had an addiction he couldn't quite break. You see, he was a gambler, and try as he might, he couldn't help himself from betting at the tables. And he didn't play in little games with friendly wagers. No, he played in the high-stakes games. One night, things weren't going well, and the prince kept playing and losing, playing and losing. I'm sure he thought his luck would turn around at any moment and he'd start winning. 
and I'm sure at one point he realized there was no going back and he had to play until his fortune turned or he'd be left without anything. But his luck didn't turn. And in that one night, he lost nearly his entire fortune due to his inability to stop gambling. The prince was so upset over the loss of his fortune that he decided life was no longer worth living and he committed suicide early the next morning. Alexandra was madly in love with her husband, and she took his death hard. The article says she was filled with profound melancholy, and that from then on she was, quote, noted for her eccentric freaks. After the death of her husband, she returned to Russia and lived in a small chateau on Lake Onega. She kept to herself and rarely let visitors in. Her friends and family tried to convince her to leave the chateau and move back to St. Petersburg, where there was more for her to do. But Alexandra ignored all their requests until one day she was visited by a spiritualist. Nobody knows how he did it, but somehow that man was able to convince her to move back to St. Petersburg and resume a happy, active life. Now, if you've listened to any of my other podcast episodes, you'll know that the story can't possibly end there. After all, nothing super out of the ordinary has happened yet, right? Well, everything in Alexander's life changed on July 5th, 1872. I'll read you a paragraph straight from the article. It says, On the morning of the 5th of July last, the circles of the highest aristocracy of St. Petersburg were thrown into the greatest excitement by the rumor that the president of the Metropolitan Police had ordered a lady belonging to the Russian nobility and noted not only for her extraordinary beauty, but also for her eminent talent as a lyric and dramatic poet, to leave Russia without delay, and that the Emperor Alexander II had ordered her estate to be confiscated. Wow, what could Alexandra possibly have done to warrant being exiled from her home and have all of her property taken from her? Well, thankfully the article doesn't stop there. It describes how the night before, two policemen arrived at the splendid palace of the princess at 11 o'clock at night and told the servants in the house to wake up Alexandra because she had to go to the police station with them. Police! Open up! Alexandra obeyed the orders and got out of bed and got dressed. On the way to their headquarters, she kept asking them what the fuss was all about, but they refused to answer her questions. When they finally got to the police station, they took her to a private room where the president of the police was waiting. He handed her a copy of a letter and asked her if she'd written it. Alexandra took the letter, looked at it, and had no choice but to say, yes, she'd written it. The president of the police then took the letter back and pulled out another piece of paper and read it to her. It was a proclamation that Alexandra was forever exiled from the empire and that her estate was confiscated. She would immediately be transported to the German border and never be allowed back into Russia. Surprisingly, Alexandra told him that she had already been planning to leave anyway, and if he'd give her a few moments to return to her home to gather a few things for her journey, she'd leave and make her way to the United States instead of Germany and never return. The president agreed, and she returned to her home to get ready. She left the next day, accompanied by a Russian detective and one maid. The detective took her to the border and left her there. Alexandra then got on a train headed for Berlin. But before she could even get off the train there, she was met by a German police officer who told her Berlin didn't want her, and he would accompany her to Bremen or Hamburg, her choice. 
to make sure she got on a ship headed toward the U.S. She chose Bremen. So by now I'm sure you're dying to know what was in the letter that got Alexandra exiled, right? Well, she had somehow come across a book or pamphlet of some sort telling about a unique community in the United States. After studying their beliefs, Alexandra decided she wanted to flee Russia and join them. Have you ever heard of the Oneida community? It was something right out of the 1960s, except it came into existence more than 100 years before that decade. Basically, it was a community built on free love. And yes, that's even the term the newspaper used in the 1872 article. Followers of the Oneida community basically believed that every man there was married to every woman, and they could have relations with anyone they wanted. I have no intention of going into the details of how that worked or some of their other practices, because I try to keep this a clean podcast, but I will tell you about their unique idea on child-rearing. The community practiced birth control of sorts, but for those who wanted to have children, they had to go to the founder of the community and ask permission. They would then be matched up according to their traits so that they could produce perfect children. Maybe now would be a good time to mention that they also believed Jesus Christ had already returned in 70 AD, and it was possible to be perfect. Naturally, they wanted to make perfect children. And yes, I realize this sounds a lot like the Nazis. Anyway, the mothers would keep their children for about a year until they were weaned, and then the children would be sent to a children's home within the community where they would live permanently with people who were assigned to take care of childcare. The actual parents of the children had no authority over them. They were allowed to visit, but if the people in charge of the children's home thought the birth parents were bonding too much with their children, they were banned from coming anymore. Sound horrific? It does to me. For whatever reason, Alexandra decided the Oneida community's way of life was ideal for her, and she was going to go for it. Her problem came when she decided to invite her friends to come with her. Remember how in the beginning of this story I said that when she was a girl she attended the Imperial Female Seminary in Moscow? Well, that school was full of girls from many of Russia's most noble families, and Alexandra met five or six hundred of them while she was there. When she decided to join the Oneida community, she wanted to take as many of her friends with her as she could. So, she copied a letter explaining her plan and passed it around to pretty much everyone she knew. One of those copies fell into the hands of the police, and they passed it on to the emperor. He didn't like the idea of all the noble women in Russia being enticed to practice free love in America, and put an immediate end to it by exiling Alexandra. The article about Alexandra ended there, and try as I might, I couldn't figure out whatever happened to her. I'm not even positive she made it all the way to the Oneida community. But I can tell you that the Oneida Community Mansion still stands today and was listed as a National Historic Landmark in 1965. The community ended their free love practice in the late 1870s, and although the community had many business ventures over the years, the only one still operating today is one you might have heard of, and you might even own something from it. Yes, the Oneida silverware you can buy just about anywhere originated from the Oneida community. For my second additional history story of the day, I'm going to do something unique. Instead of focusing on one story or article, I'm going to focus on one section of the newspaper. The personals. I don't think anyone knows for sure when the first personal ad was placed, 
but some believe it was a woman named Helen Morrison. Clear back in 1727, Helen posted an ad in the Manchester Weekly Journal. I couldn't find the exact words she used, but she basically said she was ready to settle down and looking for a nice gentleman to be her husband. The attention Helen got wasn't exactly what she'd hoped for. Instead of being contacted by her knight in shining armor, the city mayor came after her, and he had her committed to an asylum for a month. 300 years later, and personal ads in newspapers are pretty much a thing of the past, although they did have their heyday. Nowadays, there are many, many websites where people looking for love can find their perfect match. And since descriptions aren't nearly as limited online, a person can give much more detail about what they're looking for in a partner and let others know about their interests and passions. They can even post pictures, although that's not necessarily a good thing since Photoshop also exists. When I was younger, I would sometimes read the personal ads in local newspapers and wonder about the people writing them while I tried to decipher the coded abbreviations people used to describe themselves, like SWF seeking LTR. It wasn't exactly cheap to put ads in a bunch of different newspapers, so it was best to keep the messages short and abbreviated. In the 1800s, the personal section wasn't just used to find a new love interest. Instead, people used the section to write back and forth to friends and strangers alike. So, let's look at some personal ads from the December 19, 1872 edition of the New York Herald. Example 1 says, L.H., letter received, will see Shadow Can Can tonight, 97 Greenwich Avenue, Black Domino, Pink Mask, will bring Flora, signed Sophie. I love this ad because although Sophie is sending it to someone named L.H., meaning they most likely already know each other, it still feels like a clandestine meeting since Sophie says she'll show up wearing a black cape and a pink mask. Example 2 says, Dr. William H. Mitchell will do a favor for an old friend by calling at 590 Broadway. The ad is simply signed, Old Friend. I have no idea what Dr. Mitchell planned to do at that address, or why, but apparently it was worth putting in the newspaper. Example 3 is a little bit longer. It says, James Hagen, shoe dealer, 33 East Broadway, left his home on Tuesday to buy stock. During the day he was seen at Clark's Liquor Store, corner of East Broadway and Montgomery Street. But since that time, nothing has been heard about him by his afflicted wife and five small children. Now in this case, a man has disappeared and his wife and kids are desperate to find him. We don't know the outcome, but I can't help but wonder if James Hagen met with foul play, or if he visited that liquor store and then decided to ditch his wife and kids for a new start. It definitely wasn't an uncommon occurrence back then. And that wasn't the only ad in the personals that day of someone looking for lost loved ones. One ad was from a man in Ireland looking for his brother he hadn't heard from in ages. His last known whereabouts were Pennsylvania. Another missing man's last known whereabouts were in California, and still another hadn't been seen since he left his family in Arkansas. But the longest ad for a missing person also offered a $1,000 reward for information. They were searching for the missing professor of languages, G. Frederick Knorr. Every part of Professor Knorr was described, from his mustache to his scars to the brand and style of underwear he was wearing the last time he was seen. Anyone who could give information leading to the professor, if he was alive, would get a thousand dollars. 
anyone who could give information leading to his body if he was dead, would still get $500. So who would place such a detailed ad? An old lover? A child looking for their lost father? Nope. It was the mayor of Philadelphia. It makes me wonder if he was looking for the professor because he was an old friend or because he was wanted for a crime. Sometimes the messages are even more cryptic. Example 4 says, NFD, if you write, giving me your address, I will answer and I will not betray you. Signed, Carrie. Example 5 really makes me wonder. It's not addressed to a certain person and is only signed XXX. It says, Dolly, you must explain things more satisfactorily or we shall not meet again. Hmm, an ultimatum. And sometimes the ads were just completely random, like in... Example 6. It says, Will Miss Nellie B. send amount of bill for last week's washing? Signed, Nyack. That one ended in an exclamation mark, so Nyack really wanted to get paid. And the last personal ad I'll share with you today is example 7. This one makes me kind of sad. It says... A very pretty little girl, two months old, very healthy, and of good parentage, for adoption. It then gives an address you can go to if you want the little baby girl. I hope for the baby's sake, people wanting to claim her as their own child were at least vetted. For my last additional history story of the day, I decided to look for a story from the American frontier, and I found the perfect article in the Helena Weekly Herald out of Montana. I love this newspaper because even though it's very, very old, it has a beautiful logo with mountains and a river, buildings, and miners working in the background. The name of the newspaper is in a fancy, bold font that completely stands out from other newspapers of the day. The logo artists sign their name as E. Sears. Now, one thing to keep in mind as I tell this story is that Montana didn't officially become a state for 17 more years. And although Helena is the state capital of Montana now, it was still a few years away from that designation. Instead, Virginia City, a city I told you about in a previous episode of this podcast, was still considered the territorial capital of Montana. I know that's a lot of background info, but it's important to keep those things in mind for this story. Helena was less than a decade old, and it was trying to make a name for itself and put in place all the necessary departments and amenities of a well-functioning city. On December 19, 1872, the local newspaper told about a recent fire in town. Back then, there was a tower set on the hill, and when a fire was spotted, the person in the tower would sound the alarm. In a day and age without easy ways to communicate, it was an invaluable resource. That day, when people heard the alarm and started looking around, they saw billowing black smoke coming from the north end of town. At first, they thought the Helena Reduction Works was on fire. But they soon realized it was a stable belonging to a man named L. Lingloes. So how did the public respond to the fire alarm? Well, according to the article... People came out of their homes and businesses in droves and hurried to the scene of the fire as fast as they could. Back then, when a fire alarm was sounded, instead of asking people to stand back to let the firemen do their jobs, 
The citizens were the firemen, and they would all come out to help whoever was in trouble. Mr. Langlois, the owner of the stable, ran a boarding house for men who worked at the smelting works. They were just sitting down to dinner when they heard the alarm. Apparently, one of the workers in the stable had been smoking a pipe and a spark lit up on fire. Mr. Langlois and a Frenchman ran for the stable. And I'm sorry, they didn't give the man's actual name. Something that, unfortunately, was very common back then when dealing with people originally from other countries. Anyway, Mr. Langlois and the Frenchman ran to the stable to try to save the animals. The horses were so scared, the men struggled to get them under control and out of the barn. When they finally managed to get hold of the animals, there was another problem. They couldn't go back out the way they came in because the doorway was completely engulfed in flames. With all the smoke in the air, the men were quickly suffocating with no exit in sight. But then the Frenchman remembered that there was a hole in the ceiling leading to the loft so hay could be dropped down below. They put a beam up, and the Frenchman quickly ran up into the loft. When Mr. Langlois tried to follow him, he couldn't make it. He'd recently been sick and just didn't have any more energy to climb up the beam. The flames surrounded him, singeing his hair and his whiskers and lighting his clothing on fire. The article says Mr. Langlois used superhuman power to finally pull himself up through the hole, and he was able to drop through the loft window to the ground below. He was barely conscious, and his clothes were nothing but cinders. His face and hands were burned so bad he was covered in blisters everywhere. Surprisingly, after he was given much-needed care, the newspaper said he was expected to eventually recover. Unfortunately, the two men weren't able to take the animals up to the hayloft with them, and three horses died in the fire. A mule was burned so badly, they were planning to put it down. By now, you're probably wondering why I would tell you such a depressing story. Mostly, it was because of the article printed next to the one about the fire. This article was simply titled, The Fire Engine. You see, the town of Helena had purchased a used fire engine, and they were in the process of getting it workable when the fire at Mr. Langlois's stable happened. All it needed were a few finishing touches, and it could have been used to help fight the fire. If the fire had waited just a couple of days to start, maybe the animals wouldn't have died. A Mr. E. Frank was in charge of getting the machine ready, and he expected that it would be able to shoot a stream of water between 120 and 130 feet into the air. The article also said 32 men would be able to work on its braces. And yes, I have absolutely no idea what that means. Mr. Frank also said that a thousand feet of hose had just arrived, and they were waiting for the hose cart to come to carry the 2,000 pounds of hose. Mr. Frank complimented the town of Helena, saying there would always be plenty of men willing to help run the fire engine. That's just how it was there. And the article ended with a call to hurry the process of organizing a fire company, electing officers, and naming and painting the fire engine. For today's advertisement, I'm looking at an ad that was in the Cincinnati Inquirer out of Ohio on December 19, 1872. The ad is for something called table sauce. It says, For family use, the Halford Leicestershire table sauce, the best sauce and relish made in any part of the world. The ad ends by letting you know, again, that it's for family use, and you can buy a pint of the sauce for 50 cents or a half pint for 30 cents from any grocer. I'd never heard of anything called table sauce, so I had no idea what it would taste like. 
A quick Google search, though, told me it was along the lines of ketchup or Worcestershire sauce. Friends, thanks for joining me for today's podcast as we look back at the mysterious disappearance of the Briggs family and the crew of the Mary Celeste. Join me this Thursday for a mini-episode about an event that might hit a little too close to home for some of you after the events of last week. And then listen in next Monday for the 50th episode of this podcast. I have a special famous day picked out that has something to do with the number 50. Think about it this week and see if you can guess correctly. Talk to you later.